Welcome to This Much I Learned, Marketing Week's monthly podcast in which we invite the great and good in marketing and beyond to impart their wisdom and perspective on marketing matters. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, and I am your host for this episode. My guest today is Kath Kears, CMO of Sage. Sage is a marketing organisation on the rise, investing heavily in brand and in capability, bringing in some notable marketers to help it achieve its purpose of equipping and enabling SMBs to realise their potential. Not least Kears, who joined Sage first as a NED before taking on the CMO role in 2020. She has a plethora of NED roles she can speak to, at the likes of Bupa, Funding Circle, Talk Talk, and Royal Mail, and chair gigs at such notables as Tesco Mobile and Trusted House Sitters. Not to mention, of course, big marketing gigs at O2 and Next. She is perhaps above all else a self-confessed, I quote, nosy northerner and passionate marketer. Kath Gears, welcome to This Much I Learn. Thank you so much, Russell. Really, really delighted to be chatting with you today. Well, it's great to have you. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, Kath, you describe yourself as a nosy northerner. Uh, tell me how that's helped you in your career. Oh, um, well, I'm a very proud northerner. Um, um, my beloved tells me that it's all, we're all very deluded about how proud we are about coming from the north. Um, but I, I think that it has really helped me being a nosy northerner because it's about curiosity, isn't it? Um, I, I genuinely am very, very interested in the world and in people. And I'll talk to anybody about anything. Um and I think that that has helped me in my career in terms of just really being interested in people and what they're doing and what they're thinking and um, their view of the world, um, what they would like to do differently. Um, so I think it's just curiosity. It's just a it's a it's a northern way of saying I'm a bit curious. <laughs> I mean, that sounds to me maybe being nosy, but also would stand you in very good stead. Uh, to be a good marketer. I mean, if you're nothing unless you're putting yourself over to the customer and finding out how best to service their needs, uh, sounds like that that would uh, obviously, uh, it has stood you in good stead in your career as a marketer as well. No, absolutely. Um, a, a deep passion of mine is customer insight and customer centricity. Um, throughout my whole career, I do believe that if you use customer insight as your signpost, um, not exclusively, because not every when you ask customers, they don't exactly describe things as they would always want them. But it's been the cure, you know, the the curious marketeer in asking why the five whys uh, of design thinking. I think is really really important to marketeers to help them create, innovate, and really deliver um, solutions, products, and services that help customers. You know either get more out of life, get more out of their work, you know, drive the economy forward, contribute to communities in a better way. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Customer insight is at the heart of what I believe makes a great marketeer. And now it might be just my ignorance, Kath, but for anybody else who's listening who doesn't know what the five whys of design thinking are, just fill us in, will you? A, a nice education. <laughs> Well, you know, far over. I am no, I am no expert on this, but um, certainly what I have been taught is 
is asking the five whys in terms of really getting underneath what customers are really saying. Um, if I can take an example from my telco years. Um, so I was really, really lucky at uh, when I worked at O2. I got to uh, run customer services and I ran marketing at the same time, uh, which was an absolute gift of a role um, because it meant I could talk to the teams who were delivering our services to our customers um, and talk to the teams that were creating those services for our customers. So we, you had um, you know, a great feedback, feedback loop. Um, but one of the things that we used to get in terms of large call volumes was always about the bill. Um, and so the, the natural reaction was, customers don't understand the bill, let's redesign the bill. <laughs> and therefore the world would be a better place because we would have a cleaner, clearer that they would understand and therefore everything would be okay. Um, but when you ask the five whys in that situation, they say, well, you know, but why isn't, why don't they understand the bill? Well, it's too complicated. Why is it too complicated? Well, it's because our tariffs are really, really complicated. Nobody really understands them. Oh, okay. And so if our tariffs are really, you know, complicated, why is that? Why are we doing that? Well, it's because, you know, the way we've had so many over the years, we haven't really simplified it down. Um, I said, and then if we said, how do the customers feel about that? Why do they feel this way? Well, they don't trust us. They think that they're trying, we're trying to pull one over on them by having so many tariffs that are complicated that they don't understand and not transparent. So the answer was not to redesign the bill, was the answer was to, we need to build trust with our customers. We need to be more transparent in our pricing. We need to simplify it. It was a much deeper relationship and customer insight than it was about redesigning the bill. So that would be a, an example of when we would use whys, the five whys. And I suppose it's, uh, I suppose put another way, it's about forensic analysis, isn't it? It's just, I guess it exposed the limitations of the data age, really, because we're blessed with uh, a plethora of uh, information about customers. But actually turning that into insight does require those questions to be asked and then another question to be asked, another, another question to be asked. Would you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And, you know, being data driven is absolutely fundamental for building effective cases for investment, for taking decisions. You know, it's an absolute cornerstone of what marketers need to do. But the other side of this is, is being human and having that deep empathy and that, that insight for customers because data only takes you so far. And let's be honest, you know, a lot of data is, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out. <laughs> you've got to make sure that the data quality is there. You've got to make sure your analytics are there. You've got to make sure, you know, there's a lot of care and um, deep care that has to go into data. The deep care also has to go into understanding customers and to have that human empathy as well. You bring those two things together. It, I think um, um, I'll, I'll steal, I think it's idea that you used to call about the, the maths and the magic. Um, and I think that's really true. You have to have the mass and you have to have the magic. And when those two things come together really well, that's when you create amazing products, propositions, services for customers. Let me take you back a little bit from, uh, well, just a few years when you started your current role uh, as CMO at Sage. Uh, you spent quite a few years in non-exec roles to that point. So why did you decide to take the role, the CMO role at Sage and at that moment? First of all, I am so lucky to be the CMO at Sage. Um, it's an amazing business with great values. Um, born out the northeast of England 40 years ago by two Newcastle University students. Um, and it's a, you know, the, one of the biggest tech 
um, listed companies in in the UK. One of the very few, actually, because um, we we mostly seem to to sell a lot to the to our US friends. Um, so for me, um, Sage is a very special company that actually is delivering amazing products and services to customers. Now, when you look at it, you say, oh my goodness me, accountancy, payroll software, can I really get out of bed for that in the morning? Let's be honest about it. And the way in which I most definitely can is for, it's about our customers. Um, I have worked in PLCs for quite a part of my life and it's rarefied air. Most people don't get to work in PLCs and so therefore it comes with big responsibility. Most people work in SMBs. In fact, 95% of the the world's population work in a, an SMB and they are the backbone of economic growth. Um, they are the innovators, they create employment, they create jobs, they create communities. So if you have thriving SMBs all around the world, you actually have thriving communities, economies, health, welfare. It's actually super, super important. Our job at SAGE is the Support Act. Our job is to support SMBs to do the best work that, of their lives. Um, we're there to, you know, remove the admin, give them expert advice, give them amazing software. So we really, um, you know, lift them out of a lot of, which is, you know, quite tricky, highly regulated activities and tasks and give them insights hopefully as well give them information that kind of levels the playing field a bit because there's lots of information asymmetry if you're competing against big companies these days going back to our data conversation it's really tough because you haven't got the same data as the big tech organizations so how do we at sage just elevate the work of humans let them you know automate the tasks that need to be that can be automated give them insight um, from all the data we see from SMBs around the world. And that's the reason that I want to go back to the stage because it's actually about creating amazing organisations in SMBs around the world that give great communities, great societies and economic growth. Sage is a company that's investing a lot in brand and marketing, which is not always a given any organisation, but particularly in a B2B organisation. So how... How are you making the case, building the case for investment in brand and marketing at Sage? Yes, we are um, investing in brand um, and I am um, have a very supportive uh, board and a very supportive CEO. Um, that investment case is built on data. Fundamentally, um, we need to scale and grow Sage. Um, 40% of our revenues come out from the US. Uh, we're a global business, although we are very proud of our northeast roots. Um, and to do that, we need to grow our brand um, because our customers are only in market 5% of the time. 95% of the time, they're not in market. So when they get to that 5%, then we want them to think of Sage first. We want them to have had a relationship with Sage, got to know us, understand us, know what we offer, how we can help them, how we can support them. So when they get to that, into that buying decision point, then they think of Sage and they know Sage. So building our brand is, is super, super important. And it's also back to, you know, share of voice, share of market. If your um, plans are to scale in markets, then you need to grow your share of voice. Um, so to do that, we need to invest in 
brand and demand. Um, so I think, you know, I, I know that um, particularly when we, you know, we talk as marketeers, you know, we always talk, oh, you know, you know, B2B's demand, you know, but if you're B2C, that's a lot more brand led and so forth. And for me, it's a balance of both. You've got to do both really, really well um, because, you know, it's about building those relationships with customers and you have to be great at both brand and demand. It's a combination of both of those things to, to really engage with customers. It's a false argument, really, isn't it, that one should be used in favour of the other or over the other. I mean, it's always both. It's absolutely always brand and it's always uh, performance. But I think in well, B2B and B2C, it's interesting that you were talking about 95 Five, the ratio there, the work that Aaron Bergbass did with the LinkedIn B2B Institute, because a lot of B2B advertising seems to be just persuading, constantly persuading you to uh, to switch when, as you quite rightly say, most people are not actually in market uh, at any time or majority of time. No, I mean, it was a great piece of work done by then as well. And that has been really instrumental, actually, in a, in a lot of our thinking. Um, I think the other thing is that, you know, customers buying behavior has changed it's changed it's been changing over many years and it's still changing and i think the pandemic um has really sped along some of that change particularly in um business buying so we have seen that you know over 70 percent of people have already decided which product and service they're going to purchase before they get anywhere near contacting you because they're talking to colleagues, they're talking in community groups, they're using comparison websites, they're using content to make that decision. So going back to the brand building again is if you're not in those conversations before they make their decision and then they click onto your website, um, then that is not a good use of a marketing dollar, pound or euro. You know, we have to make sure that we're in those conversations, that we're helping them make the right decision as well. Uh, because sometimes, you know, you've got to make sure that you're doing good service by customers. Sometimes we are not the right solution for customers and we need to be clear about that for them. It's just making it a much more transparent, um, straightforward um supportive buyer enablement rather than selling. One of the things I've heard perhaps more than uh, anything else in my time at Marketing Week is that marketers often lack influence and in turn impact. They bemoan their lot that they're not necessarily seen in the same credible way as other people, for, for example, finance are in their organisation. You spent a lot of time in boardrooms. What are perhaps the one or two things that you would advise those that are listening that they can do to build that influence in their organisation? No, it's a really good question, uh, Russell. I think the first thing for me is to um, have clarity about what you're trying to achieve and why, and to build relationships. Um, so marketeers, um, we all love our acronyms, don't we? Like every profession, um, we, we have lots of acronyms and lots of terminology that we think other people understand and they don't. Um, there's lots of things in accountancy I do not understand. Um, so it is my job to go and find out, understand, ask, learn. And we have to help people understand marketing. So that means we have to, um, in a 
you know, simplistic, um, transparent way, really help people understand why we are trying to do what we do. And it has to be underpinned to a business objective. So just going back to Sage, we want to scale and grow the business. So therefore, what is marketing wanting to do to scale and grow the business? That is a business objective, what we want to achieve. So it's really about talking through um, marketing strategy, marketing theory, using case studies from other organizations to demonstrate this is why we want to do what we want to do. Then we have to back that up with data. So we spend a lot of time with our finance teams working on econometric modeling and marketing effectiveness and really working with them as a joint team to make sure that we are being effective in our marketing spend and the results that deliver and also understand where we can't show things and why and why some things take longer than other because really we want our finance team to work with us and be our allies and advocates for investing in marketing. And so we spend an awful lot of time with uh, our finance colleagues to make sure that we are aligned. So when we're in that sweet suite, I've got my CFO by my side and my other Exco colleagues. We want to do this because we understand why and what outcome it should drive if we do this. I mean, it's, it's having that conversation, isn't it? Having those regular check-ins, telling that story, building that narrative, but building it together. It's not like there's, this isn't an adversarial relationship, is it? It's uh, everybody's trying to do the same thing, which is to deliver business outcomes. Each can do it in their own different way. But the the North Star, if you like, is exactly the same. Um, I, it, it strikes me that it, it can be you know, a, a battle or some people do see it as a battle to get the money signed off, but doesn't sound as though you've met, uh, that's something that you've suffered from. It's all down to people at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, teamwork and people. And I um, always believe in being completely transparent and honest. You know, there is lots of places where I have been, you know, in a marketing lead role where we have got things wrong. You know, we, our marketing spend has not been as effective as it should be. Uh, our marketing tactics have not been right. As long as I am transparent about those with my colleagues um, and the team, it's really important because that means we can learn. You know, it, it's back to that question, what have you learned today and what are you going to do differently as a result of that? Because that's what moves us all forward. So, you know, it, it's not been perfect every day of the week. Do, do not misunderstand me, because it really hasn't. Um, but I think for me, you know, in terms of be, being of a, a certain vintage now, um, I do believe very strongly that being transparent, building relationships, being honest is the best way to build trust to be able to therefore, you know, move things forward in, in, a, in a constructive way. And, um, you know, when things go wrong, they go wrong. Let's learn from it. Let's move forward. And we share that learning with everybody. Sage recently became the first client of ECCP's Faith and AI Creative Agency. Why did you take that decision to get on board? Um, well, first of all, VCCP um, are um, our main agency and I've worked with them for many many years um, I think they're outstanding um, strategically um, for us to be their founding um, client was really building on top of the work that we've been doing for many many years in AI 
So within our products and services, I mean, let's face it, any digital product and service uses AI. We, we are experiencing AI every day through our social platforms. Who, you know, if you're on TikTok or your news feeds, whatever it happens to be, is using AI in some way, shape or form to do that. And our products and services at Sage have, have AI within them. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a great optimist, to be honest. Um, I genuinely believe that um, humanity will find a way to use AI for good. We will find a way to help elevate the work of humans. And I say that sentence because um, Aaron, our lovely uh, CTO, has talked about elevating the work of humans for many, many years, because that's what we do at Sage. We take away um, and try to automate effectively work that can be done through technology to enable our customers, whether they're business leaders or whether they're CFOs or payroll uh, bookkeepers or HRDs, to concentrate on the high value work where human insight and empathy can really add value. Um, and I believe that to be true in marketing too. What we can, where we use this is more as a, um, as a support act in the same which way we talk about Sage. I'm a passionate belief that um, technology can help marketeers too. The reason I believe that is that fundamentally we should use technology to elevate our work. Um, I had a great example actually from uh, one of our team. They've been using ChatGPT. Um, we write lots of emails and content, as you can imagine, and let's use a um, you know hypothetical one. We're you know writing a piece of content for a very technical piece of payroll legislation in you know outer Mongolia. So you know very technical stuff. So they spend a lot of time getting the technicalities right, making sure that's worked. So when they normally did it, they would spend most of their time on the technicalities. Now using generative AI assuming of course it is correct, which you have to check, then that means that they have the, they can create the basis of that email or piece of content. And then they spend the rest of the time being creative, adding the, adding the humanity into it, adding the creativity into it. So in terms of the balance of their work, their balance of their work has moved to being much more creative and focusing on building the relationship and the empathy rather than the deep sort of legislative detail. So it's that that I am hopeful of is that actually we make sure that we use automation where it is right and proper and it elevates us to spend more time on customer insight, more time on humanity, more time on creativity. So hopefully I'm hoping that actually AI will make us all better marketeers. And I think that, you know, Microsoft are calling their uh, AI co-pilot, which is going to be introduced into obviously Microsoft Office. Uh, and I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. It's a co-pilot. It's not a pilot. Humans are the pilot. We're driving things. We're asking the chat GPT to help us. We're asking the AI to help us. But what we choose to do with the extra time that that gives us then that's our choice. I'm hoping that we will all make really great choices and spend a lot more time being creative and human because that's what we are as humans. You're right. I mean, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot uh, over the last few months, mainly because it's been a topic of conversation that uh, that's tends to have uh, dominated many of the chats that I have with people in the industry. And obviously there's an anxiety about 
job losses and that might prove to be very real and very true and it's something that we have to manage we've all got responsibilities there uh, but if we think about it as a tool uh, as a partner to do things better and of course back to the point that you made earlier about data it's only as good as what you put into it in the first place and uh, concepts and conceptualization which can only be done by humans uh, is obviously key in regards to creative output if we're going to reduce uh, AI uh, within, uh, in the context of uh, creative and uh, creation of advertising. I mean, but there's got to be some watch outs here. I mean, what, what, what have you identified as the concern uh, with AI? Is this things that you're keeping a close eye on or that you feel need to be kept a, uh, kept a, a close eye on? Um, absolutely. Um, with all technology, I think that's where regulation is super important. Um, you know, I am actually a big advocate of, of regulation, um, not to the point of regulating it that we can't use it. But I think there has to be checks and balances with everything in life. Um, so I think the first thing that I would focus on is transparency. You have to be clear about where it is AI that is creating um, and an outcome or creating work or create or being in a conversation and where it is a human. So I think transparency is really important. I think also you can kind of get yourself in a black box situation where people don't understand what the AI is doing. And again, helping to make sure that you can have visibility in and try and understand it as best we can. But I think predominantly it's checking the business outcomes, checking the outcomes that come from it, really making sure that we are working these things through. And it's also ethics so it's how we use ai in ethical senses so in terms of making sure that we're not building in human biased that we're not building in um a lot of the um issues that we have in society today into a program that is learning from the issues that we have in society today and then either heightening them you know widening them so making sure that there is ethical approach to the way in which we're building AI, I also think is super important. AI aside, what excites you about uh, the world of business right now? What gets you skipping out of bed on a Monday morning? I've always had a great passion for where technology and, and customers come together. Um, so I know, as you say, I mean, AI is everywhere, isn't it? It's like kind of the new, the new buzzword um, of, of, the, of the day. Uh, and everybody's having the same debate, you know, AI, good, bad, uh, what does it all mean? So for me, I think that it is a very, very exciting time to be in business. And it's also a time for um, responsibility as well. Going back to the conversation we just had, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it is really exciting to see where we as humans use this technology to do good in the world and um, you know that's not just you know products and services but it's how can we change you know some or tackle some of the world's biggest problems whether it's you know poverty homelessness you know um, the way in which we tackle big societal issues, sustainability, I think this is a really exciting time to see what we can do. And as you said, you know, it's going to change the nature of all of our jobs. And so that means we have time. What are we going to use that time for? How are we going to use that time productively to drive 
humanity and society and communities forward. So that for me is a really exciting thing, is just to, to see how this all plays out. We've been talking throughout about your uh, career and the fact that you've done many things in many different categories and sectors. Uh, you can, it is said, learn as much from what didn't go right as what did. So if I was to pinpoint or ask you to pinpoint a failing in your career, what would it be and what did you learn from it? So many to choose from. Um... I think just the, the one today. Just the just the one. Okay, well, I'm quite happy to share more if anybody's interested. Um, so, I think probably um, going going back to being an optimist that also makes me um, very. Um, I can get very passionate about a certain you know path or a certain course of action or a certain product or a certain service. Um, so um, again, I'll just reflect a little bit on my telco days. Um, at a telco, in terms of building relationships with customers, you're often seen as those people who, who send you the bill. You know, you're, you're not the handset provider that's, you know, Apple or something that have these, you know, wonderful um, devices that you carry around with you. Um, it's just, you know, you get, you know, when the network goes down, then it's your fault and you we send you the bill as well. So, you know, in terms of customer relationships, then it often felt that we were on you know, um, on, on difficult ground. Um, so we looked at developing uh, handsets. Um, and so we developed a handset. It was called Cocoon, actually. If you look on, anybody's interested, you can <laughs> look on the Tinter web and you'll be able to see it. Um, I actually thought it's, it's yeah, it's, I actually thought it was quite a bit, of, it was a really great design, actually. It had this like kind of, it was white, it had this like ticker tape thing that went around it, which showed, you know, what there was, uh, who was calling you and so forth. Um, Two problems with it. A, it came out just before the iPhone. And I think we can see who won that one. Um, so I think market contextual understanding was probably required. And the second thing is um, the economic capacity for a telco, even of the one that the size that I, I used to work for, to be able to move into handsets is quite limited. Um, so if you're taking on uh, you know, into a completely different sector, a completely different um, world of manufacturing, then I think you can certainly test and learn. And we did learn an awful lot from it, for sure. But in terms of being able to scale that as, a, as an initiative, we were never going to be able to scale it. So I think that I was probably overly optimistic about the the um, investment required for us to really get into the handset game and take on some of the the giants that we uh, we know and love now. Um, but as a piece of learning, we definitely learnt a lot. That um, you know, certainly from a design perspective, when the when the iPhone came along, it was li literally it was about three or four weeks later when they came to the offices to show us the iPhone. I was like, oh yeah, no, that's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> What's the best piece of advice that you've received that you've taken forward and uh, and it's proved a benefit? Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to um, lean on my 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 dad, actually. Um, my dad was always very clear that you had to bring yourself to work. Be, your, be true to yourself because it's very difficult to be somebody else um, or pretend that you're somebody else for any length of time. Um, so... I've always tried to be true to myself and to bring my whole self to work um, and not be a different person there than I am the rest of my 
um, rest of my time. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's been hard because I think culturally you have to find a place where you are comfortable, somewhere where you feel very comfortable being yourself every day um, and being able to be very open, honest and transparent in the way in which you like to work and how you work with other people and, you know, um, make sure that you, you are supporting them and enabling them in the best way. So I think that for me has been the best piece of advice that I believe that I've been given um, was just to be true to myself and bring myself to work. That seems to me to be a uh, a good moment to uh, conclude today. And sage, uh, pun deliberate advice. Thank you very much, Kath. Thanks to everybody that listened. Until next time on This Much I Learn, goodbye. Thank you.